brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, the longer a a speech or a, a sermon or teaching or article is doesn't necessarily mean it's better. In fact, what is arguably the most famous speech in American history was less than 300 words. Um, actually took only two minutes to deliver. It begins with the phrase, and I'm sure you recognize this, four score, seven years ago. Um, many of you memorized the whole thing. I, I didn't. I got out of that. But it's Gettysburg Address, delivered by President Lincoln 150 years ago. and was uh, a dedication a speech or dedication remarks for the inauguration of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Pennsylvania on the ground, very ground where the Battle of Gettysburg was fought. And that speech, though it was only two minutes long, is etched in history, etched in our history in particular. And did you know, though, that Lincoln's remarks were not the main part of the ceremonies that day? Actually, there was a speech that was delivered prior to his by Edward Everett, a gifted orator, and his speech was two hours long. 13,000 words. And yet, his was, though his was the official Gettysburg Address, it is Lincoln's remarks that are remembered as the Gettysburg Address. Everett later uh, admitted to Lincoln, I wish I could flatter myself that I had come as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours that you did in, ten, in two minutes. You know, Lincoln's dedica- dedicatory remarks are remembered because uh, they were so impactful. He had masterfully captured the significance of the events that had taken place on that field and what it meant for the nation. And as we approach our text this morning in Ephesians 6, we see Paul too in an economy of words able to communicate important and critical truths for us, particularly in life's, regarding life's one of the most important and difficult tasks, and that is to disciple children. And though Lincoln's words were inspiring, They were not inspired, but Paul's words are, as he says in Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That verse contains only 16 words in the Greek. 16 words is all that Paul gives us here in regards to providing parenting of our kids. He gave twice as many words when he spoke to children in the previous three verses. Twelve times as many words in regards to his instruction in marriage back in chapter 5. But yet here, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, as he was leading Paul to write these words, we were only given 16. And you know, the more I I study and and meditate on this passage, and I've looked at it many times in my life, sometimes in total desperation as a parent, But the more I I meditate on these words, the more I'm amazed at at what Paul is able to communicate in regards to parenting. 2007 author George Barna wrote that he had identified over 75,000 books on parenting. 75,000. And I've seen so many parents, myself included, in times of desperation often, rushing to many of these books and saying, well, what works? I've been trying these different things and nothing seems to be working. And so, you know, there are many good books that are helpful, but oftentimes we will do that and run to these other works rather than diligent study in the only book that really has the answers ultimately. That is God's Word. And again, I'm not discounting. There are several good books and helpful books that we can learn from, but We need to first consult and dig deep into the Scriptures because God has given us in this short passage in Ephesians and in many others all the instruction that we need to be godly parents. He's given us all that we need to know in order to deal with any situation that we face with our kids. We have to have the conviction and believe that this book, the Word of God, is sufficient in its instruction on parenting. And so we're going to spend some time this week, and Lord willing, next, looking more in detail at Ephesians 6, 4 and what God has to say regarding parenting. We'll see a parent's priority, a parent's pitfall, and a parent's practice. 
Today I want to just focus on the first one, a parent's priority. And we're really going to just look at the first and last words of this verse to see that. The first point this morning comes from the very first word that we see in Ephesians 6, for fathers. Fathers. The Greek says, and fathers, to let us know that this is a continuation of what uh, he had been saying to children. And that's part of the section and his instruction within the home on parents and children. And Paul takes here the same approach that he took when he, when he focused on marriage and his instruction on marriage, where he first addresses the, the one that is under authority and then addresses the one that is in authority. Back in chapter 5, he first spoke to wives in verse 22, and then husbands in verse 25. And here he began his instruction in verse 1 of chapter 6 to children. And now in verse 4, to fa- excuse me, to fathers. And the word that Paul used here forefathers is pateras, which is the plural for pater. Um, you'll probably recognize that word. It re- refers primarily to the male parent. The can be translated as forefathers, fathers, ancestors, and sometimes as parents. And since it is plural here in the text, is, is Paul then referring to both parents? Should the New American Standard have translated it as parents? That is one, uh, one verse in Hebrews 11 does translate it as that. Um, many people think that it should be translated that way, that Paul is speaking directly to both parents. But of the 22 times that the, the word parents appears in the New American Standard, only one of those is a translation of pateras. That is in Hebrews 11. There is another that's translated from prognos. And in 20 of the other 22 times that the word parents appears in the New American Standard, it is this word gonais, gonais. In fact, that is the word that Paul used for parents back in Ephesians 6, 1, when he said, children, obey your gonase, your parents in the Lord. So the question is, if Paul intended to address both parents here in verse 4, why did he not again use the same word? Or why did he not use pater and mater, father and mother, as he did in verse 2? Why would he switch from the more common usage of gonais to the less common, very rare usage of pateras, if he's referring to both parents? Well, I think I'm bringing all this up because I think Paul is specifically and intentionally addressing fathers here in verse 4. And why does this matter? Is saying that fathers are the only ones responsible in parenting and that mothers have no say or no role at all? That uh, you ladies can just, you know, tune out right now. You don't have to keep listening because this verse isn't for you. Is that what Paul is getting at here? I don't think that's the point at all. We know from other scriptures that mothers are uh, key individuals in regards to bringing instruction in their parenting. Proverbs 1.8 And 6.20 both say, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Proverbs 31, there's a, a verse there that mentions her instructional role within the parenting of her children. Also, Ephesians 6.1 says to obey both parents. 6.2 says to honor your father and your mother. And then we have the wonderful example of Timothy's mother, who her impact and her instruction in Timothy's life, God used to bring him to Christ because His father did not know the Lord. I think the point here is not that Paul is excluding the role of mothers in the training of children, but he is emphasizing the role of fathers. He wants to bring special attention to the fact that a parent's priority begins with dad as the spiritual shepherd in the home. Mom can influence and mom should influence. In fact, if you're in a fatherless home or a home where where father does not know the Lord, then moms, you are the only option and God will bless your efforts as he did with Timothy's mother. But for any dad who calls himself a Christian, God is saying to you men that you bear the primary responsibility to shepherd your children spiritually. And not to do so has a significant and profound effect. William Farley, in his book, Gospel-Powered Parenting, which I would highly recommend, uh, it's one of the few of the 75,000, I think is very good. But he said in his book, as he is, he's been a pastor for many years, and he was observing families and children and how some children would, would be, uh, follow the faith of their parents and others would abandon it. And he, he was trying to think about what's the correlation, what is the connection, and this is what he writes. He says, why? What, what went wrong? Why did some parents succeed and others fail? Was it a failure of technique? Most disciplined their children, some more than others. 
We all love them. The results appear to have nothing to do with where the child was educated. The common denominator between success and failure seems to be the spiritual depth and sincerity of the parents, especially of the father. There seems to be a strong correlation between the faith, commitment, and sincerity of the family's head and the spiritual vitality of his adult children. What he has to say there, I think, is consistent with what we see in Psalm 128. I would ask you to turn to that psalm, Psalm 128. It is one of the songs of ascents, as uh, Tim mentioned at the beginning of our service this morning. It was one of the songs that would be sung by the pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts that were held there. And you, if you were a part of that culture, you would be coming in the throng and you would hear families singing this psalm and also its sister psalm, 127, which focuses on families in the home. Psalm 128 says this, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. There in that psalm, the the psalmist gives a poetic picture, an illustration, a visual illustration of what a home looks like for a man who fears the Lord. He describes here uh, the man's wife as a vibrant and productive and healthy vine. And his children he describes as like olive shoots growing, showing the, the promise of a future prosperity and security in the home. Psalm 128's message, I think, is straightforward. Men, as you, as you go spiritually, so goes your home. That's the point. Having a mother who loves God and instructs her children is important. But even more critical than that, they need a father who is sold out for Christ. Your kids need to see a, a man who will rise up and lead and take initiative spiritually. Your children need to see a father who will lead them in spiritual conversation, who will pray for them and with them. Your children need a man who will protect them from temptation, who will instruct them in the Lord, who will love God and live for him. That is above anything else what your children need to see from you, men. And dad, if you, if you want a home that looks like Psalm 128, where, where there's this peace and prosperity and, and blessing. If you want that kind of home, then don't neglect bringing God's Word into the lives of your children. Don't neglect disciplining your children. Don't neglect talking with them about eternal things. Don't neglect spending time with them. I have so many dads who, who come and talk to me and they're struggling in a relationship, particularly with their teenagers. And I ask them, well, what... What kind of time are you spending with them one-on-one? And often it's very little. Men, don't neglect spending time with your kids. Don't neglect living a life of integrity before them. My wife and I met a man a few years ago. We were on a cruise together, a gift of my parents. And when we were on this cruise, we met this man during one of the mealtimes. And he was a missionary. And we got to talking with him, and he was talking about uh, the many things that he'd done and the fruitful ministry that God had given him. I, I don't remember what country it was from, but, but the man then stopped as he was uh, talking about this, and he, he then changed his tone, very somber. And he said this, I'll never forget it. He said, I would trade it all in a second if I could do it over. We were puzzled by that. And then he went on to describe the fact that he was alone on that cruise that his children had been estranged from him for years because in his effort to do the Lord's work, he had neglected his own family and they walked away from Christ. And so he sat there. And it just troubled me to have converted so many souls and yet seeing his own children on a path to hell, to have discipled so many and yet see his kids not be disciples of Christ. And that conversation haunts me, not just as a pastor, but as a dad. Men, let that not be us. Let that not be you. May you not be that man who looks back on his life and filled with regret 
Because he did not focus on the one thing that really matters in the end. Bringing the Lord Jesus to his kids and living out a life of of, of loving Christ before them. And that man was a miserable wreck and he had done all these things for the Lord and yet his own children had walked away from the faith. And that's why here in Ephesians 6, 4, Paul takes his quill and he uses it as an arrow and aims it directly at the heart of dads, calling us men to recognize our importance in our own homes. That you are significant. God has put you in a key role in investing in the lives of your children. Don't ever discount that. You matter within your home, no matter what the world says about dads. And men, Paul is calling us here to step up and to lead in our instruction and training of our children. And so guys, if you have a, a wife who's been asking you to, to maybe lead a prayer time or reading in the scripture, or your kids maybe have done that, you need to listen. Don't, don't not do that before it's too late. And before we go any further, guys, if this just seems like there's one more burden to bear as a leader in my home... <laughs> And trying to work and provide and and I understand I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader and this is just this is just another burden for me. Let's remember what God said in First Peter that we are to cast our cares, our burdens upon Him. Right? Tell Jesus about it. Tell Him the difficulties, the weaknesses, the faults. Tell Him, help me, help me with this. I lack the motivation. I lack the energy. I lack the wisdom. I lack the understanding. I, I, I'm maybe caught up in the things in my own life. Be willing to give anything up that distracts you from this purpose. Psalm 128 says, Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who what? Fears the Lord. Men, I would encourage you to focus your walk on Christ. Make that the aim of your life. Make that the desire and passion. And as you seek to love God with all your heart, that's naturally going to spill over in the lives of your kids. They're going to see, my dad loves Jesus. They're going to see it in your life. And you're going to be motivated through love for him to want your kids to know him. You're going to be motivated out of gratitude and encouragement and the strength that Christ gives to share Him with your kids, to be concerned about where they are at, to have the energy and the strength. And guys, seek help from other men. We have small groups here, not just because churches do small groups. We have them here intentionally so that we can be involved in one another's lives and have other men that can encourage and help us. And you older men that have your kids that are grown, you're not done yet, guys. You're not finished. You haven't passed the baton yet. The baton will be in your coffin. That's when you will pass it. But for now, you have responsibility, not only to your own children's children, but to the other men in this church to help. You've been through it, guys. Made some mistakes, done some things right. You need to help the other men here. So you need to be involved in small groups or fellowship groups so that you're interacting with the other men. And guys, don't be embarrassed to ask for that help. And again, all of us need to be involved. This is all our responsibility as a body of Christ to shepherd our children. Yes, dads have the particular and sole responsibility, not the sole responsibility, but the primary responsibility. But we're to come alongside and disciple one another, are we not? We're a body of believers. We're a community that is to come alongside and help one another particularly in those homes where there isn't a dad or a dad who has abdicated his responsibility, who doesn't know the Lord. So guys, let's do this. We're in it together. We cannot let this slip for the sake of the Lord Jesus' testimony, for the sake of the children here in our midst. And moms, don't pester your husbands about this. Don't keep asking them and bugging them and bothering them about praying and leading in devotions and things like that. You need to pray for God to move in their heart and strengthen them. And then graciously ask how you can help. But don't take over their role for them. For a parent's priority begins with dads. It begins with fathers. Fathers who, make, who know Christ and make Him known to their children. The second point under a parent's priority is seen in the 
last words at the end of Ephesians 6, 4, where Paul says, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Actually, that, those last three words are one word in Greek. Lord here specifically refers to Jesus. And, and Paul adds that phrase of the Lord to indicate and tell us that it, just, it isn't just any training that he's talking about, but a certain kind of training. It isn't just any instruction, but a, a certain focus in that instruction. And that is that it is to be distinctly Christian. That it is to have Jesus as the foundation, as the aim, as the focal point of what we teach and instruct and do. And it it brings to mind an important question for you dads and for us as parents. What is your parenting goal? What are you aiming for? What are you aiming at? Again, not in theory, but in practice. Not what you want to be doing, but what is it that you are doing? What is your real priority as seen by what you are or are not teaching your kids? By what you, the time you spend or don't spend with your children? By your expectations of them? What is your real priority? Let's look at another key parenting text in Psalm, back in Psalm 78. Very important, we need to see this. Psalm 78. It is the second longest psalm in the Psalter. It was written by Asaph, who was one of the leaders in the um, praise ministry in the temple. In fact, he would be close to our equivalent of Tim Adams. So the A for Tim Adams actually is Tim Asaph. You could call him that. But that was the responsibility he had, and God had led him to write several psalms. And this psalm, Psalm 78, Asaph describes Israel's history, their history of rebellion against God, their lack of faith in Him, despite the fact God had shown His love and His mercy, His kindness, and His justice. Despite all of that, they continued to turn away from Him. But Asaph didn't write this psalm as an historical assessment of Israel. His primary focus was as a warning and an exhortation to parents. Look at Psalm 78, verse 1 with me. It starts with a masculine of of Asaph. That is a a wisdom psalm. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, referring to the scriptures, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Stop there. What was Asaph's concern here? What was his primary concern? What was he worried about in a sense? That the coming generations would not be like the previous ones. And so he appeals to parents here. He appeals to parents to teach your children about God and teach them from His Word. But notice the goal of that. Notice what He is wanting parents to aim for in that instruction. Look at verse 5 again. That their children should teach them to their children that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should what? And we cannot miss this. That they should... Don't get quiet on me here. They should put their confidence in God, that they should put their trust in God. They should believe in him, depend on him, hope in him. That is the goal of parenting right there. That's it. That all that we say and do and instruct and train would be aimed towards our kids putting their trust in Christ, that they would have confidence in him, that they would believe in him, that they would follow him. That's it. That's the aim. Proverbs twenty two seventeen says this, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge so that your trust may be in the Lord. And yet there are so many parents who give very little, if any, spiritual nourishment to their kids. Perhaps because of laziness or lack of concern or just being so busy or too caught up in things or maybe the attitude that, oh, I can't save my kid anyway, 
They need to decide that on their own or, or maybe because parents don't believe the Bible can change their child. And then you have, you have parents on that side. You have parents on the other side who use the Bible as a rule book. And they, they promote this strict adherence to rules and structure with the thinking that if, if my child follows all these rules, does all these things exactly this way, then he will definitely turn out right. You know, I wish, I wish that were the case. So we have on the one side, we have the abdicating, passive parents. And on the other, we have the deterministic, controlling parents. But both of these extremes miss the point. On the one hand, you'll produce a reprobate. On the other, a hypocrite. Neither extreme has the right goal. They don't have the right focus. Neither one addresses the child's greatest need. Neither one is training and instructing and modeling the child so that they would put their confidence in God. Again, I would ask, what is the aim of parenting? To bring your baby to Jesus. It is to, to point your child to the Savior. It is to usher your youth to the feet of the Master. Because your teaching and instruction and training is to be of the Lord. It is to be for the Lord, in the Lord, to the Lord, from the Lord. And the most important task, the greatest assignment you've been given, the priority of your parenting is this. Brothers and sisters, it is to make Jesus known to your son or daughter. So that he or she would know Christ. You know, your child's greatest need is not so earthy as a a good career, a successful education, a productive life. It's not so mundane as being a, a good person or, or not using drugs or not being in immoral, immoral relationships or, or even just staying out of prison. Those aren't, good, those aren't their real needs. There's, there's going to be a lot of moral people in hell. A lot of people who can even quote the Ten Commandments. There'll be a lot of successful people in judgment. What is your child's greatest need? What is your child's greatest need? And I would ask you, you know the answer to that. Does your parenting reflect that? Does what you do and instruct and teach and how you spend your time with your son or your daughter show that you understand and believe what their greatest need really is? You know, when I had Alvin's job as student ministries pastor before he kicked me out, you know, I I took some time while I was doing that to read several books on youth ministry and uh, issues involved with youth. And, you know, and most of them, if not all the ones that I read, uh, describe this massive exodus of children from church, from the faith. In fact, most of them quoted these several studies, and, and almost every study showed at least 75% of children in evangelical churches walk away from the church after they graduate from high school. Some books had even higher numbers than that. I think the number's even higher in the Southern Baptist churches. But think about that. Three of every four kids abandon the faith. That is scary. It's unimaginable. You know, and they read further in these books, and, and they, they all had their different ideas of how to fix the issue, and, and some of them had very good suggestions how to fix the problem. Uh, they talked about maybe having stronger small group ministries within the youth or getting more other mature adult believers involved in the children's lives along with the parents uh, or conducting more camps, giving more parenting classes. Some even said, you know, we just need to do away with youth ministry altogether. But none of the books that I read, at least, none of them identified the real problem and the real solution. You know, these kids, why are they walking away from church? They're walking away from Jesus is why. They don't know Him. They don't have salvation. They don't know and love the Savior because if they did, they would want to be with His people and worship Him with His people. They're walking away from church and the answer is ultimately the gospel. The answer is ultimately that they need to hear the gospel. They need to see the gospel. And the primary avenue and venue for hearing and seeing it is in your home. It's you, parents. It's you, grandparents. It's you, aunts and uncles, fellow church members. They need to see the gospel when they're around you. And they need to see the gospel and hear it when they're in your home. Your parenting has to be oriented around that. It has to frame all that you do. And I'm afraid our generation of parents, 
you know, we've become so busy and distracted that a gospel-focused home is taking a back seat. It's taking a back seat to, to TV and homework and kids' sports and music lessons and video games, entertainment, just busy with stuff. You know, and most of that stuff isn't bad in and of itself, but, you know, we're not to parent for this life only. We're to parent them for eternity. And I know you can't save your children. I can't save my children. That's a sovereign work of God in the heart as He opens their eyes to understand the gospel and respond in repentance and faith. I know that God is sovereign. And in that sovereignty, though, He uses means, right? He uses means to bring us to faith. And the means in which He does that is through hearing the gospel, as Romans 10 talks about, and also seeing it lived out in the home. For your children... Your children, you are the primary means to bring them to faith. So teach them about God. Teach them about His compassion, His love, His justice, His goodness, His mercy, His sovereignty, His holiness, His wrath. Teach them that He is their Creator and that He created them for this purpose, that one day, as we were singing about earlier, worthy is the Lamb. Listen to Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord. This is being sung around the throne to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. One day we are all going to stand and sit and bow before the throne of Christ. And we are either going to bow and worship and praise and adoration and cry out with the throng worthy as the Lamb, or we're going to bow in judgment that God will pronounce judgment on those who have rejected the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our aim is to bring our kids on that day to be those who would say, worthy is the Lamb. Praise Jesus for your death on the cross for my sins. That is what we're aiming at, parents, is on that day they will be followers and proclaimers and giving praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that they would be on the other side fearing judgment and hell. That is what we are to aim at. So we need to teach them about the one on the throne. We need to show them who he is. And we need to teach them about themselves. They need to understand there's a problem. There's a, a reason that, that all of us deserve to be those who would be before that throne in judgment and fear. Right? What is that reason? What is the problem? Sin, right? As cute as your little one is, they are a wretched sinner just like you and me. And they need to be taught about that. They need to understand that, that they are a sinner before God. And that's why we need to hold them to the standard of God's word so they see, I can't keep this. I can't follow this. I can't obey God in the way he requires. That's a good thing for them to come to realize. They need to understand they are a sinner, as you and I are a sinner in need of a Savior. As Romans 3.10 says, there's none righteous, not even one. All have sinned. We need to teach them not only about God, teach them about themselves. Again, we need to teach them about Christ and show them Jesus. That He is Savior and Lord and King. That He is good, that He is kind, that He is just. We need to teach them Acts 4.12, which says, There is no other name under heaven which is given among men by which you must be, what? Saved. You must teach them about repentance and faith. What is true repentance? What does God require in coming to Him? He will give mercy. He will forgive. But it is only in response to genuine repentance, a turning from sin and a trust in Him. John 3.16, whoever believes in Christ, trusts in Him, will not perish but have eternal life. They need to understand what it means to come to Him and submit to Him as Lord and Savior. And we need to teach our children about grace. That it isn't through some performance, through some good deeds, good behavior, some religious activity that God will forgive them. Right? You know Ephesians 2, 8, right? For by grace you are saved through faith. And that is a gift of God. It's not as a result of works. And we know that. And I'm sure some of you may be thinking, okay, I get that. I understand the, the gospel is what my children need above everything else. I, I understand the priority for my home is to be centered around the gospel. But what does that look like? Does that mean I'm to, to be just telling my kid the gospel all the time, every day, 24 hours a day? Am I supposed to be sitting them down the entire day and going through gospel tracts with them, having them listen to sermons in the gospel? What about all the issues and responsibilities of life? 
What about helping them to be diligent and to, to work hard and you know, be prepared for a family of their own one day? What about all the issues regarding uh, the world outside and our culture? And, and what about their contact with the world and those in the world? How do I deal with all those issues? We're going to spend more time in the middle of Ephesians 6 and looking at the practical aspects of the commands given there. But I want to take a moment this morning, the last part of our time together, and I want to address that last question. I want to address the issue of how do we handle the influences of the world with our children? Because so many parents, myself included, struggle with this. We struggle with the issue of how much should my kids be exposed to the world? What do we allow them to do? What do we restrict? Should we let them do this activity? Hang out with those kids, listen to that music, watch this movie, read that book. Do we send them to public school, private school, home school, no school? It is an option. (laughs) What about texting and Facebook and iPods and video games and on and on it goes. Many parents, they respond to this by what I call the parenting pendulum. They go one direction or the other. They, they either uh, take the path of what I call incorporation or isolation. Some parents go the direction of what I call uh, incorporation. They give up trying to hold back the culture. They just think, well, my kids are going to eventually be exposed to everything anyway, and they're going to have to make a choice. I can't stop it. Some say that, well, God is sovereign. It's up to him to save my kid anyway. And as a result, these parents give their children few or no boundaries. You see any dangers with doing this? Yeah, what does Scripture teach about the We are born in sin, Psalm 51. That foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. What's going to happen if your kid is open and exposed and allowed to do whatever they want? The Bible warns us we aren't to intentionally feed our fleshly lusts and desires. As Romans 13, 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. 1 Peter 2, abstain from fleshly lusts. Because continual feeding of the lustful and sinful appetites, that's only going to attract your children not toward the cross, but away from it. Also, by giving them no boundaries or very little boundaries, you doom your child to a life of hard circumstances and hard consequences. Proverbs 22.3 says, The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Proverbs is full of the various consequences. The Bible is full of the various consequences of those who run after sin. Eli is one example from the book of Judges who practiced incorporation parenting. 1 Samuel 3.13, God says, I have told Eli that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Brothers and sisters, we we know this. We can't abandon our children to the world. Satan's domain, giving them little or no boundaries or protection, that's not obedience to what Ephesians 6.4 is calling us to do. Proverbs 23.6 tells us, you know this, first train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That passage is both an encouragement and a warning. That the path you set your child on, he or she will not likely deviate from it. Unhindered access to what they want now will only make it harder, that much harder for them to turn from it later. Even as they do come to Christ. That's one extreme, incorporation. The other extreme, which some parents go, is what I'll call isolation. That is to say, I've got to protect my children completely from the culture. I have to isolate them. I've got to keep them out of the world totally. Not let them hang out with other kids. They always must be with me. I I must protect them from all the world's influences so that they will turn out okay. So that they won't get sucked in. That God will save them. And this seemed reasonable. There is some wisdom in protecting our kids. But if we go to the extreme, there are some dangers there. We have to be careful that if we are completely isolating our kids, it can lead them to a false expectation. The parents have this false expectation. If I keep my children from temptation, they won't sin. Which we know that's not the case. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Parents who practice total isolation 
In my experience, I've often seen a deterministic attitude in their parenting that if they keep their child in a sheltered environment, that their child will follow God. Isolation can also promote a wrong understanding of God's grace. That our kids need to realize and understand they are sinners at birth and they need to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. And if a children is completely isolated, they may not see their sin as that bad. And, and especially as they look at those who sin out in the world, that they commit bigger sins. Isolation can promote a works-based mentality. A child can think, if I just keep the rules, look good on the outside, then God's pleased with me. Self-righteousness is also a great danger that they can uh, uh, tend to look down on others who aren't as holy. Extreme isolation can produce no heart for the lost. It can breed the idea that the goal of life is to be separate from sinners, that unbelievers are evil, that they're to be avoided, not evangelized. It's easy for an isolated child to see life as a minefield, never to cross, rather than as a rescue operation for souls. And isolation can promote division in the church. Fellowship is often hindered when you have families that refuse to uh, hang out or spend time with other families that don't parent the same way. We have to be careful of these things. Again, I'm speaking in terms of the extremes, all right? Speaking in terms of the extremes. And I think most of us understand we need to avoid both of those extremes. We can't have complete and total isolation, and we can't have just reckless abandon uh, incorporation into the world. So then a lot of us as parents, we, we tend to operate on this pendulum somewhere in between that, right? Can't go all the way over here. I can't go all the way over here. And so we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out where do we go on that pendulum. Sometimes I need to open up and let them do some things. Other times I need to restrict them and step in. I think as parents, we, we just have this life living somewhere in between. And we seem to be stuck with two options, either to join the world or to avoid it. I suggest we change our paradigm. I suggest we jump off of that pendulum. There is a third option, parents. Not just the issue of whether I join the culture or avoid it, but reach it. We aren't stuck with just the two options. A gospel-centered home is focused on this third option, to reach our culture. Paul Tripp calls this raising our children redemptively. And it is this idea of fostering a mindset in your family, in your home, that we are here and we exist for one purpose, and that is to live for Christ and to reach our culture for Christ. That's our mission as a family. Our mission is to make disciples. Now, it is important, and we have to work through the issues of, of what our child is, what's okay for them to do and not to do. That is definitely a part of our training and instruction. But, but our kids need to see the focus of our family is that mission. That we are here to make disciples. A few weeks ago, Brock reminded us of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Incorporation, it dilutes our saltiness. Isolation hides the light. And our children need to grow up seeing that we are here for a bigger purpose beyond figuring out what's okay to do and what isn't okay to do. They need to see what matters most is is worshiping God and calling others to do the same. Are you spending your parenting life swinging along that pendulum, parents? Do you see your job as primarily deciding when to avoid the culture or when to join it? Have you taken this third option? Raise your children redemptively. Reach the culture. Just how do you do that? How do you cultivate a redemptive mindset in your home? First, have much gospel-centered instruction and conversation with your kids. Memorize a, a gospel outline together and, and teach through it. I, I have one I put on a card for our kids. It's just four simple pillars of the gospel message and several passages that relate to it. And several times as a family, we have walked through this together and spent time on the various things as part of the gospel message. 
Talk to them about when you share the gospel with a friend or family member or co-worker. Pray together as a family for the lost. Pray to be a testimony to the lost. Pray for missionaries. Adopt a missionary. Come Saturday and as a family make a decision. We're going to get to know a missionary here and we're going to spend time corresponding with that missionary and, and interacting with them as a family and praying for their ministry, being involved with them. Take an active role in the local gospel ministry here. We have several that have your family participate in it at uh, Hope Again or the Deaf Blind Ministry we have or Avenues or Children's Hunger Fund. Again, go to the missions conference. All these people are going to be there on Saturday. Go evangelize on Saturday night. Go to our webpage under outreach and find out where they're going to be and take your kids with them. This is a wonderful way to show your kids that we are here for more than just existing. We are here to proclaim the message and good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ask your children who they're talking to about God. The dads, parents, do your kids see Christianity as a part of your life or that it is your life? If God's only around on Sunday mornings and for some mealtime prayer and frequent scripture reading, what message do you think that's sending to your children? What they see you do and what they hear you say, that's what tells them what's most important to you. And I would challenge you again, parents, give your children a mission. Help them to understand. Foster a family identity that says to your kids, we are here to glorify God. Our family exists to exalt Him and to make Him known to the nations. Just as we read in Psalm 78, to teach your children what God has done. And to teach the world through your family what God has done. That God made us to love Him and to love others. And we need to make it a mission that will be passed on to the next generation. Just as Asaph articulated in Psalm 78. That they would rise and teach their children. A family identity centered on God will make an impact in your children's lives. Because listen, when our mindset is redemptive then conversations with our kids about what is okay to do or not okay to do or, or what we need to stay away from or what's, what's all right to be involved with, those conversations take on a different tone because now it becomes a conversation around what's our mission, kids? What is it that your mom and I are focused on? What is it that we were created to do? Why are we here? And how will that fit into that mission that we have as a family? Our kids need to see that we are to be salt and light. Now, what if my child isn't saved? Are you saying, Tim, that we're supposed to have them evangelize others when they themselves don't know the Lord? Am I to treat my child as a Christian, even if they're not? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that a gospel-centered home, if, if you and your wife, or you and your husband, or, or you, if you, if your spouse is not with you, if, if your focus is as a mission of the gospel, then your kids will recognize what matters most to you. Do they see a home focused on Christ with a mission to reach the world for Him? Do they consistently hear what God's Word says about God and about His world? Do they see that honoring Christ and living for Him is the most important thing for you and for your home? Are they continually exposed to the gospel? A gospel-centered conversation. Are they taught about the culture through the eyes of Scripture? Are they shown what it looks like to love God and to love others? These are the things that will have impact. The gospel will do its work in your children as it is proclaimed and it is lived out by you, especially you dads, in your home. That's part of my testimony, seeing my dad and the example that he left me, even though when I was in the home, I did not repent, and God did not grant me that faith in Him at that point in time. It came later. But it was a memory and a testimony of my dad. That was a big part of that. Having a gospel-centered home, raising your children redemptively, taking the third option that we're on a mission as a family to reach the lost, that will affect how your children think, how they view people, how they spend time, what activities they participate in, the attitudes and the desires they have. It will make an impact. And if this doesn't make sense or you're trying to, you're swimming with, well, how does this apply? Hang with me. We're going to talk more about God's design for parents, the rest of Ephesians 6, 4. But in the meantime, 
would ask you this. Commit this week to have at least one gospel conversation with each of your kids. Even if you've got a two-year-old that's still trying to understand the language, read them the story, have pictures. <laughs> have a gospel conversation with each of your kids. Pray ahead of time and then talk to them. The other thing is I would ask you to do is consider what would it look like in your home to raise your children redemptively. You know, Jesus described the kingdom of God, His kingdom, where He is king. He described it in Matthew as a, as a treasure in a field which a man found and then went away and sold all that he had with joy in order to obtain that field. Jesus described it as a pearl that a merchant had been searching and searching and searching for. And when he finally found this valuable and wonderful and great pearl, he sold everything he had gladly to obtain it. Why is it that these men willingly sold everything and gladly gave it all up? Why is it that they did that? They'd found something far more beautiful and valuable than anything they had ever seen. What is it that will cause your children to be willing to walk away from everything they have? All the idols, all the pleasures, all the sinful pursuits, all the wealth, all the entrapments of the world. What is it that will cause them to walk away from all that with joy and give it all up? When they see the beauty of Christ. Parents, how is the beauty of Christ on display in your home? Do your kids see parents who have sold everything they have to get that treasure, that pearl? Are they continually exposed to Jesus through His Word and, and through your example? Because parents, the best thing that you can do for your kids is to keep bringing them to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are weak and fallible. We know our kids, what they need. They need you. And yet, Lord, at times we fall so far short. Help us. We cast this burden upon you. Lord, show us things in our lives that are distractions or hindrances away from having a gospel-centered home. Or give us wisdom and understanding to know how to speak to our kids and, and to instruct them and train them redemptively. And Lord, most of all, we would ask that you'd be glorified in our homes and that you would save our children. That as a church, Lord, you would stir in all of us, God, to have a, a deep concern and burden for the kids here. Lord, and to live a life that honors you before them and to continue to bring your truth and the message of, of Lord, uh, the dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to them. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.